So, Leviticus chapter 11. That being true, uh, what Drew prayed, what Drew led us to sing about there, that being true, how should we live? Uh, when you get to Leviticus chapter 11 and you've gotten through the sacrificial system that makes it possible, possible for us to be made right with God, you've seen the establishment of the priesthood, you've seen this power example of worship in Leviticus 9, you see the negative side of that, the, the sinful rebellion that happens in Leviticus chapter 10, when you get to Leviticus chapter 11, here's what you get. After all that, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. We're in verse 7. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is also unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now, you go through the establishment of the sacrificial system, and the establishment of the priesthood, and this powerful picture of worship in chapter 9, and judgment in chapter 10, and then God starts to discuss Sunday lunch with the people. <laughs> you know, like, wait a second. Like, it's all built up here. Leviticus 1 through 10, all these huge themes, sacrificial system, priesthood, worship, judgment. Chapter 11, this is what you should eat and not eat. Um, I don't know if you grew up in church or what that experience was like, but we lived pretty close to my dad's parents uh, where I was when I was growing up. And so we would finish big church um, worship service. And as kids, you know where, right where you were going. You were going to granddad and grandma's for Sunday lunch. Um, now, I've told you before that my dad's parents, they were Methodists, which as a little kid, all that meant was they got out of church a lot earlier than we did. Like, I didn't know anything else about being Methodist except granddad and grandma got out of church a lot earlier than we did. And so grandma would go straight home. And she would start cooking lunch, and we would get out of the Baptist church, and we would drive over there, and we would have Sunday lunch. Granddad prayed the same prayer all 18 years of, of my life growing up, verbatim to the word. Same prayer every Sunday lunch, and we just knew that we were going to go over there. The transition from worship, what we call, we, we understand all of life is worship before the Lord, but we call that worship gathering to Sunday lunch is a strange transition because you sometimes got to Sunday lunch and it was affectionately called roast the preacher um, around around the table and so you know 
you would be like, oh, you'd pick on all the things that didn't go well at church. Or sometimes you'd get to Sunday lunch and you'd find yourself arguing with each other. And you're like, hey, we just worshiped the God of the universe, you know, 30 minutes ago. And now we, we made to Sunday lunch and we're, we're arguing with one another or fighting with one another. This, what seems like a disconnect from worship gathering to Sunday lunch, what you find over and over and over again in Scripture, and it really is the message of Leviticus 11, is what happened in 1 through 10 is meant to be directly connected of what you eat and how you eat. And there's part of us that rebels against that. There's part of us that says, no, 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 that's worship and priesthood and sacrificial system. That's that. What I eat is another matter altogether. Except scripture just won't let you get away with that. Because what it means to worship the Lord in gathering and coming before him is meant to be lived out in every moment of our lives. And so what we have to do as we go through these laws in Leviticus is we're trying to see how does this apply to worship, to obedience before the Lord, and how do we live this out. On your little note sheet, if you picked one up coming in, I put them on the table late because I, I printed them a little bit late. Crazy day today. But uh, one side of it is a carryover from last week that I sped through in about 90 seconds, but it's about in, how do you interpret the Old Testament laws. Um, this isn't really a 90-second conversation. This is more of a lifetime of study uh, conversation. There's so much uh, to be said about this. I put a couple of things on there that I thought might be helpful to you. There's a common strategy for interpreting the Old Testament laws that I just would tell you to use with great caution. Um, I don't think it's wrong necessarily. I, I don't think it's preferable, but there's uh, this comes out of if you... Uh, came out of a Reformed background, this would have been the popular way to interpret the Old Testament laws. You would take the ritual law, so if it had to do with sacrifices, that was just for then. If it had to do with the nation of Israel, civil ideas, that was just for then. If it was a moral law, a general practice, that still applies. That still pertains to life. That's an oversimplification, but that's generally the approach. There are three categories of law. Two of them are gone. Only one remains. The upside of that is it makes a lot of sense. You look at the Old Testament. If it had to do with the sacrificial system, you leave it behind. If it had to do with Israel, that was for the gathered people of Israel. That was for them. If it was a moral law, you kept it. The downside to that is you can't find those categories anywhere in Scripture. Um, when the New Testament talks about the law, it talks about the law. Uh, and so to divide the law into those categories sounds great in theory. It's really hard in practice, and you just don't find it anywhere in, in the Bible. And so there are great Bible teachers and scholars that I think the world of and read and just the finest you'll find out there who take this approach. You just have to be really cautious about it. Um, the second thing is kind of the good old Baptist approach. I call it the three P's because Baptists love alliterations, as you know. But uh, um, the principle of the pattern and the prescription. You look for the principle of the passage. What's the big idea? Then you try to see if there's a pattern of that principle throughout the Bible. And then you look for a good Bible verse in the New Testament to match it. And I say that kind of lighthearted, but I think it's a great, it, it gets to the main idea. You're looking for, hey, what does this teach me about living as the people of God? Is this a pattern that you find in the Bible, and is there a Bible verse, a prescription, a passage that, that speaks to it? Uh, one of the commentators I've read on Leviticus over the last few months 
Um, he gives a seven-step process here that I've, I've put down. I think this is, is, is generally helpful as well. He says, number one, you have to affirm the inspiration and helpfulness of these passages of Scripture. Because let's be honest, about the sixth time you read, does not part the hoof, you're starting to think, okay, I'm, I'm, you're losing me here a little bit. Like, I know this is the inspired word of God, it just doesn't feel like it right now. And so he reaffirms, this too is the word of God. It is inspired by God, and not only that, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired and all scripture is helpful. It's meant to impact our lives. And so you affirm that. Two, you affirm the fulfillment of that scripture in Jesus, that only he has perfectly lived out and fulfilled the law. Three, you determine what the law or the text meant in the original context. We want to know how the people thought about the camel and the pig, not how you think about the camel and the pig. And so you're trying to understand how, how would the people have received this. Number four, you note the similarities with today's context. When we teach this in seminary, what we'll usually talk about here is you make a bridge. So you're trying to, you're trying to make a bridge from how it pertained to the people there and how do you build a bridge to current day life that connects with number five, where you're trying to identify the principles that apply to both ancient and modern. Then you look at the New Testament. What does it teach about that principle? And then you apply the principle to your life. And so when you're thinking about these Old Testament laws, that's generally the, the process that we're trying to go to. So you go back to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And then it goes, and it goes, and it goes, all the way over to verse 43. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them. And become unclean through them. Verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. It's always shocking to me that some of the most famous verses about holiness in the whole Bible get tucked into the end of this section about what you should eat or not eat. Um, if you tell someone, the, if you just say, the, be holy for I am holy, if you've been in church, you're going to kind of perk up and say, oh yeah, I recognize that. I wonder where that comes from. It actually comes from a section of scripture about what you should eat or not eat. Why did this matter to the people? What we know first is that from the very beginning of God's creation, he cared about what people ate. What got Adam and Eve in trouble? Eating what they weren't supposed to eat. So when you think about these food laws, why did God give the food laws as the very first ones? It's because it ties immediately back to the story of creation. Chapter 11, it's not random that it starts out with food laws. It is immediately meant to take you back to Genesis 1 through 3. How God has established the world and how the people should live in the world. And Adam and Eve failed in relation to what they were supposed to eat. 
actually what they were supposed to not eat. Eat everything else, but, but don't eat this. And so God is leading his people back, back through this process of, of what they're supposed to eat. Here's the second thing we know about food in the ancient world. What the people ate was supposed to distinguish them from the world around them. So a lot of what God is calling them to eat or not eat has to do with being set apart from the nations. They should be characterized by what they eat. Um, when, we were, uh, when we were traveling in the, in the Holy Land several years ago, we were going through a, a buffet line there, and one of the people with us on the trip from New Orleans Seminary was telling us a story. He had been on a trip before, this is a Christian professor from the seminary, he had been on a trip before there to the Holy Land, and he was with a Jewish companion. And, and they were going through the food line and talking about what they could eat and not eat. And his Jewish companion looked over at him and he said to the Christian professor, the Jewish companion said, he said, at least my God cares what I eat. <laughs> and it was, kind of a, it was kind of a shot at the, at the Christian professor who then in turn said, my God cares as well what I eat. He's just updated the rules a little bit. Acts chapter 10. So when you go to the New Testament, um, you get a picture of how we're supposed to understand how we're supposed to understand this in Acts chapter 10. Because I would tell you, it still matters what and how and why we eat. That principle still pertains to how we think about these things. The question is, how do we understand the laws that God has given us? So you get there to Acts chapter 10. Look in verse 9 at Peter's famous vision. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. There's that language. Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. Why did you come? Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Go down to verse 29. As Peter... As Peter interacts with Cornelius, or look in verse 28, verse 28, he said to him, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with 
or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. We'll stop right there for, for that section. What you see here is this idea that for the people of God, what they ate and who they ate with was meant to distinguish them from the nations around them. With the coming of Jesus, all of that has been fulfilled. And so God is saying, take and eat. Not only take and eat, but invite others to come in and eat with you. And so the people of God are now going to be characterized as those who are able to eat and enjoy the things of the earth. And not only do that, but they're able to enjoy the things of the earth with all the people of the earth. And so eating becomes this incredible celebration of the people of God gathered together. Here's the amazing thing. What is imagery that is sometimes used of the new heavens and the new earth? It's gathering to this banquet festival. It's gathering together to eat and partake of the good things that God has given us. So when you trace food through scripture, you have Genesis 1 through 3 where God says, don't eat of that. I'm going to provide what you need. Then he gives the people the laws about what to eat in Leviticus 11. And then with the coming of Jesus, those things are fulfilled. And God says, take and eat. Not only take and eat, but eat together. Because one day we're going to gather as the people of God to feast together, enjoying all the good things that God has given us. So what it tells us about these Old Testament laws is those laws are not meant to keep us from the good things that God has given us. They're meant to show us how to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. And here's where I want to end with this because this will impact the way we talk about the other laws that come up in Leviticus. When you think about food in Scripture, and specifically when you think about food in Scripture in relationship to disobedience and sin, what you find really quickly is food is often associated with sexual immorality and idolatry. Those three, say it again, those three things hold together, especially when you get to 1 Corinthians. Food, idolatry, and sexual immorality. All of those things representing gifts that God has given us, but gifts that are misused for our purposes. Idolatry is taking a good gift and making it a God. That's our danger, right? In life, we take good gifts and we turn them into gods. Sexual immorality, taking a good gift and using it for our purpose and our ways. Food laws, taking a gift, something God has given us, and using it for our purpose or in our ways. And so what these laws are meant to do is to tell the people how to use the gifts that God has given them. I've given you this. As my people, this is how you should use them. This is how you should live as my people. And so as we trace our way through and we work our way through these laws, that's what we're trying to get at. How do these laws help us separate from sin and dedicate ourselves to God? How do these laws help us take the things God has given us but use them in a way that glorifies him? And that really is the challenge, isn't it? And living as the people of God, how do we live in such a way that says, God, you've given me this. I want to use it for you. I want to use it for your purpose. I want to use it to glorify you. And so we're going to try to do that in everything that we do, including Sunday lunch. <laughs> um, now, the details of how you work that out um, 
have to be kind of worked out within the community of faith when you share those things. But the big idea, I think, is, is crystal clear. Let's pray together. God, thank you again for uh, the time to sing together. God, thank you for, for Hannah's testimony and the way that you're at work in, in her life. God, I pray that she would be an encouragement to each of us to think about our lives and how we live, that we're not living for the uh, accumulation of worldly possessions. God, we want to live in a way that shows that we completely trust you. Um, God, thank you for the things you give us. When you give us those possessions, when you give us the finances and the and the resources, God, we want to be good stewards of that. And God, help us to remember that everything we do is an act of worship before you. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. And so, God, let us not be people that come here to attend a service or to sing and to pray and then go home and live however we want. God, we worship you here praying that everything we do would be honoring to you, including what we eat and how we eat it and who we eat it with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.